Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. And on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Jen Berlingo. And Jen is a midlife coach, licensed professional counselor, nationally registered art therapist, master level Reiki practitioner, and the author of Midlife Emergence, a beautifully written memoir that Jen was inspired to write as she stepped fully into her queer identity and as a companion for other women traversing their midlife journeys. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we've chatted a little mm. bit before, but really mostly in a group setting. Um, and one of the things that I love about the group that we met through is that it's a variety of people of various queer identities who are really out there right now sharing their stories, either on this side of the mic or that side or both. And right. many have written books and created, um, you know, communities around your stories. And the thing that I really find so inspiring about your story is how unbelievably authentic it is. Um, in a lot of ways, when I was listening to it, um, I'm an audiobook person. I, it's as Me much too. easier for me to process. <laughs> so I really appreciate that you read it yourself. Um, and I think it just really spoke to me on such a visceral human level because your vulnerability is really there, but you, you weave in a really um, good sense of your personality as well. And one of the ways that you do that is right from the get, you share that you are sort of reframing the idea of a midlife crisis into a midlife emergence. So can you share a little bit about why that's important to acknowledge? Sure, totally. Um, yeah, for me, my midlife passage, midlife, well, psychologically is a period between ages like 40 and 65 or like early 60s. And the stereotypical midlife crisis historically more centers like the male experience and it's, you know, the red sports car and all of those things that we hear about. Um, but I feel like it doesn't need to be a crisis or an emergency. It can be more of an emergence. And I love that word because it's defined as the process of coming into view or becoming exposed after being previously concealed, um, which felt really true to me uh, and the way that, you know, my the entrance into midlife unfolded, um, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. But um, I just really just feel like this is an opportunity to emerge more as our authentic selves and have the courage to like challenge or change or shed some of the conditioning that we may have played into or accepted and, and lived in the first act of life to really soulfully architect the second act the way we want it to be. Yeah, the way you just said that is such a good representation of the way that you write, Jen. Um, you have a way of creating a very visual and emotional narrative around your story. And one of the things I think just emergence in general has sort of a visual to it, right? Like you're, right. you're coming out of your shell, you're creating something, um, you, it's, it's bigger than you are almost mm -hmm. in a way. And, um, so one of the things that 
when I was preparing for this conversation, like I was trying to figure out how do I say this in a way that it's a memoir, but also sort of um, a, 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 you have include exercises in the book effectively. Yeah. And you do that in a variety of ways. So you ask people yeah. to write and um, process things in different manners. And so you had written um, that it's known as a teaching memoir. And I was like, great, there's a name for it. Right. <laughs> so I don't have to figure that out. Totally. And I think that that's such a great way of putting your story together too, because you do it in a way that gives people perspective um, with, and, and you invite them, you invite them into this idea of self-inquiry. And it's funny because I'd never heard the term really self-inquiry until this. Mm -hmm. um, and I do consume a lot of like self-help, um, introspective type content. And so I was yeah. fascinated that not only did I hear this in your book yesterday, but as I was editing the podcast that's going out today, some the guest said something about self-inquiry and I thought, okay, have I just been like kind of missing the boat <laughs> on this? Um, no, it's just another way of saying that, you know, and, personal and exploration. Yeah, but I love it because it you the way you do it in your book, you you say, I invite you. And mm -hmm. so it's done in a way that is gentle and kind and compassionate. Do you feel mm -hmm. like that was something that was really intentional for you, not just on a personal level, but also because of what you do for your occupation as somebody who's in the realm of therapy? Yes. Um, well, it's it was very intentional to make it a teaching memoir in the sense that the two types of books I like to read as a reader are memoir and personal growth books. I'm, you know, a nonfiction consumer, I guess. I and so too, I, I wanted that. to, yeah, I just wanted to weave that together because I feel like memoir is naturally instructive. Like even when we read straight up memoir, it tends to feel healing when we hear our story somehow reflected in the voice of another person and it resonates and um, especially around things that might have felt shameful or hidden, um, shining a light on those can be really healing. So I wanted to do that, but then it felt natural to me, um, having been a psychotherapist for the past 20 years and an art therapist and doing energy work to really weave in some of the teaching pieces, the didactic pieces around like attachment theory and different things like that in a accessible way, like through my own story. Um, and then in the self-inquiry parts at the end of each of the 13 chapters, I wanted it to feel like an invitation in the sense that I know that, you know, we all learn in a variety of ways. So I really wanted to provide like a buffet of options. Not everyone's going to be a journaler. Not everyone's going to want to make, you know, visual art about it. Not everyone's going to do a per personal ritual or ceremony, but I have these different ways of relating. It's like just different languages. And that's why I pose it more as an invitation because it's not like, um, yeah, some people may have picked up the book just to read a story, but they can get that extra nugget out of it and see which part speaks to them. And it might be something they never tried before and um, can get a lot out of. So I just felt like it would engage, um, you know, different types of people in different ways. So yeah, that was definitely intentional. Yeah. Well, I like the way that you said it too, sort of giving this buffet of options because we do all learn differently. And, and that's super important. I was actually just talking about this with my wife last night on a completely unrelated subject about how we learn so differently and the way that mm -hmm. we process information varies so much. And it can vary so much, not just from person to person, but within ourselves at a given moment yeah. in time. And one of the things, um, because I was listening to this and I knew that I, I even said last night, I was like, I want to come back to this and go through each of the exercises. I did a couple of them in the moment, but I was also listening while I was doing like random yeah. things around the house. And so I found myself rewinding and being like, no, wait, what'd she say? I need to go back to that, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. it was 
so engaging and done in a way, Jen, where I also felt like you, it's not fully linear, but the way that you bring right. it together, um, I think really showcases the value of sharing the context of your earlier life um, when you were younger, the way that you grew up, um, the relationships that you've been in, and then kind of coming back to those moments as you've gone through this emergence and revisiting right. your feelings on that. What was it like for you as you were either writing the book or reading the book for the audiobook and, mm -hmm. and processing those moments for yourself again? Because there's one part of being an author, especially if it's a memoir, where you're you're putting the book together, you're trying to make the cohesive story, but after you've written it, it's published, it's out there and you're revisiting it. Is that kind of like a whole other catharsis that you go through? Totally. Yes. It felt like um, the whole time I was writing the book, that was cathartic in itself and healing uh, and therapeutic for me, but I didn't know if it would just live in my computer or if I would publish it. It was like, can I actually say these things publicly? <laughs> like, can I? Yes. And they're great. I... <laughs> Thank you. Um, and some of the feedback I've gotten is like, oh, it's like we, you let us read your diary. And I'm like, oh, shit. But also that was my intention because I really I really want to be a stand for um, exposing and being visible in the mess of transformation and that we don't have to have it all tidy and perfect. And like I was this and now I'm the ta -da, butterfly. Like that's not how change looks. And um, I feel like it looks like that on social media and just the way that a lot of things are structured now. And I'm. I I wanted to show like the mess of it. And so it's like, okay, I'm glad it sounds like reading my diary, but it does feel really vulnerable. Um, I've had a lot of anxiety around it since the book was published in April, 2023. Um, just like, oh, it's out there and hearing other people read it. And I've gotten really amazing, beautiful feedback that has confirmed why I wrote it um, for sure. And it's also another pass at revisiting my own story from an outside perspective. I feel like it's once it was published, it was no longer just mine, but I knew that it was something that other people would relate their own story to or project upon, or, you know, there were ways in which I might be misunderstood or my words might be different because a person needs to find themselves in it. So just like any piece of art, being a visual artist as well, it's like once I paint something and go hang it, you know, in a gallery here in Boulder or something, someone else has a different relationship to it that I have nothing to do with. So there's this letting go process that um, feels really similar to parenting. Honestly, I have a 16 year old, so it's like a constant process of letting go. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, the idea of revisiting gosh, childhood stuff and making it nonlinear. I, I just feel like um, this transformation process isn't linear and I didn't want my book to feel like 13 steps to like, you know, getting through a midlife transit, like that isn't what it's like. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I wish I could write that book um, or that that exists, but it's going to be different um, for everyone. So I tried to just find 13 themes or things that may come up and they may come up in different order, but um, part of it really is excavating some of these uh, earlier parts of life because of the messages that we swallow the interjects that um, come, the messages from the outside world that kind of we start to hear as our own voice later on because they're so ingrained. Um, this midlife passage is a time to question some of that. It's another um, individuation process, which is the word that Carl Jung used, like for separating from, you know, primary caregivers, our first pass at it, you know, as teenagers, that's what 
we're doing. And then the second pass at it in midlife is separating from the social, cultural, familial norms that we've, you know, taken in and then trying to figure out in that, where am I? Like, what is my authentic self? What is my core self? And orienting to that and maybe molting out of some of those layers of identity that aren't completely authentic. Um, so in doing that, it does require some degree of looking looking back and seeing maybe where those messages came from and how they've been serving and honoring that they've been yeah. serving and then seeing which ones maybe don't need to be there any longer or don't fit for us anymore. So, yeah, I think one of the things that makes your memoir so memorable is the fact that you are a licensed counselor and art therapist and the way that you show up in the book vulnerably, but also with practical um, like just even referencing Carl Jung, right? I love the concept of integration and understanding who we are and the challenges of that are very palpable. Actually, before I go down this path, I want to quote something that you said, because this is, um, this relates to that. So at one point in your book, you make a reference to like the fear of not being loved. And mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing here, so forgive me, but I wrote sure. it as quickly as I could. Um, no problem. You That you had a fear of being loved despite repeatedly seeing evidence of being loved, welcomed, and accepted more fully when we are our most soft, unguarded, and unmasked selves. And that line spoke to me so much, Jen, because when I was first going to therapy, I remember my therapist saying something along the lines of like, when you are your, your most authentic self, you will magnetize people. And yeah. I've probably said this on previous episodes where I've said, I really took it as like a general statement in the moment. And mm -hmm. as I progressed, realized that she was really speaking directly to me about things that I was sharing with her and how I was trying to find that part of myself or those share those parts of myself, feel comfortable sharing yeah. those parts of myself. And so when I think about like what you've done to create this dynamic in the book and share these parts of yourself, you know, we, we think about the fact that we can look back at our lives and have that shame, have that guilt. For me, a lot of it's shame slash embarrassment, feeling mm -hmm. of non-belonging. And I said something about, you know, recognition of why I accepted so little in my first marriage and biggest adult relationship of my life up until now. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that a lot of that came from fear of abandonment, fear of rejection from being in seventh grade, having a group of girlfriends, um, no longer want to be friends with me because they thought I was a lesbian. I was not out. Um, and so that like drove me really hard into like, okay, well, no, I'm going to date guys. I feel like this is kind of part of your book too, where you're like, I'm going to follow right. the path. I'm going to do the thing right. that people think I should be doing. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, revisiting that in therapy now and being like kind of ashamed of it and frustrated with myself and my yeah. therapist saying to me, you know, but those are the years of your life that you most desperately are seeking belonging you right. faced this rejection and your brain wasn't fully developed. And she really right. emphasized <laughs> that part. And I was like, the part that for me gave me the most grace was your brain didn't get it yet. You know, like you no, were right. there. And so that idea of like integration and self-actualization is something that I feel like everybody should be taught. Like, I feel totally. like that should be common knowledge because yeah. 
it would make it so much easier to forgive ourselves for the shit that we do or the things that we think or the way that we behave when we're younger and we aren't fully formed. And instead we just carry so much of it with us. And I feel like your book really gives readers, listeners, a chance to step back and evaluate those parts of ourselves through the lens of your own story, in addition to the exercises you provide. But for, for you at the point of your emergence, do you feel like it was sort of if you don't do it now, you're not going to do it. Oh, totally. Yeah. There was definitely a sense of urgency. Um, I think that comes with not just age, but, um, honestly, like the, I had always known I was queer and I didn't even have like the language for it as a teenager, really beyond, you know, living in, um, Southeastern United States growing up in the seventies, eighties, it wasn't, I didn't have models of queer relationships that were, healthy. And really the only thing I heard about that was like slurs, but I also knew how I felt, (laughs) but it was like, okay, there's no path for that there. Um, and so, yeah, I did the, the thing that I was taught to do and I dated boys and then I dated men and then I married a man. And I mean, he's wonderful. We're best friends, but it, it, yeah, it's not, um, it wasn't all of who I was. And he knew that from the day he met me actually. So it wasn't like a big shock to him, but when I love that, by the way, Sorry to interject, but I I feel like that's such an important part of your story. And I think it's something that probably a lot of people don't experience Um, for one, because I don't know that a lot of people enter relationships being that authentic and open about who you are. And you weren't even really like kind of out publicly in a lot of ways to people in your life, but you were comfortable with your ex-husband, Craig, and and Mm -hmm. as friends sharing all these things. And so something that just came across so wonderfully in um, the story is how that relationship between you two was so radically honest that it yeah. allowed you to find that part of yourself and flourish in that. It really did. Yeah. I feel um, really grateful that he has been such a support in terms of really teaching me that love looks like freedom. And that was sort of what our wedding vows were about. Um, we were we were together 21 years, married for 17. So quite a long time. And our vows really had to do with um, letting each other, supporting each other and being the most free and authentic versions of ourselves. So if we were to stick to that, that's basically what we did in separating and in divorcing. Because as I approached um, 40, 41, it felt so toxic to me, even physically. And I get into some of that in my book, Um, but definitely emotionally, spiritually, mentally, the invisibility of my queerness and living like a straight passing sort of life. Um, I felt like I was, I wasn't closeted. I was like having to come out all the time because it's like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm married to this guy, but I'm also attracted to women and I'm not like living that life. And yeah, for me, there, it felt like this momentum and a sense of urgency around like, I hope that in this lifetime, I get to explore that aspect of myself because it is real and I'm not sure how that's going to happen. And so I talked with Craig about that and it was like, okay, maybe we try ethical non-monogamy and see if that is a route, um, you know, to take. And maybe we just change the shape of how our relationship looks and see if that works. And we went really, really slowly with that over the course of years, um, working with a counselor who specializes in that, reading all those books, you know, really doing that slowly and gently and um, realized that that wasn't the tack to take for us. And it is for a lot of people. Um, but I think just with my own attachment style and the way that he and I wanted 
a marriage to look. We were like, this isn't that, but we can be something else to each other. And so, um, so yeah, we're still really close and we're co-parenting our teenager together. Um, but for me, it's really allowed me the freedom to fill out, I think, this part of myself that hasn't gotten to be expressed, but I've always known was in there, even as a teenager. And gosh, what you just said about your teen years, I feel like, um, yeah, that's so important. I mean, I'm I'm raising a teenager now, but like the task there is identity formation and really bouncing who we are off of our peers. That becomes so much more paramount than, you know, parents at that point. So it's like, what are friends thinking and where are we socially and how do I fit into the world and, to, and into circles? And so a lot of people assimilate to, you know, the social pressure, but it's like the conditioning and what's happening um, and what the norm is. And it feels like hard to go against the inertia of that when you are young and your brain isn't fully formed and you're like oh well this is the task and i i need to be loved and well that's exactly what i was thinking i was like it's like love me love me just right. like it's let me belong love me. it still is yeah but, <laughs> but I, at that yeah. age yeah it's so um like i have a quote in my book from bethany webster where she says um for daughters growing up in a patriarchal culture there's a sense of having to choose between being empowered and being loved and like how you know, yeah, men are a lot of times, I know I'm speaking in a gendered way here and in a binary way, which I know is completely antiquated, but in the sense of like the conditioning and the time in which I grew up, it it definitely was. And it's a relevant. Binary split. I, yeah. Yeah. For, for my generation, for sure it is. And I see that shifting and I'm so freaking grateful for that. Um, I mean, yeah, one but, of the things, oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I was just going to say like the fact that, you know, um, we were raised for goodness and for to be loved and to be desired and to be wanted, not to want to desire to love, to like get those things. And here's how you perform to get it. Whereas, you know, men being raised to for power. And it's like, if we show our power, if we're vulnerable enough to be seen and to be visible in our full power, will we be loved? Will we belong? Um, sometimes the answer is no. So it's completely, um, understandable to have that adaptive strategy, that survival strategy to just yeah. be what is expected of us when we're younger, which we don't have to do anymore. Thank God. A couple of things that you said, I was going to make a comment uh, first about how the way that you articulate the reality of a patriarchal society um, in a way that isn't like condemning and bitter, right? It's just factual. Yeah. It's just very right. much like this is the situation. It's not great. Um, and right. we're trying to unravel that and create a better, more holistic society. But I do think it's very relevant. I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, you know, and so mm -hmm. there, I, I have a very similar sense of that. Um, mm -hmm. Like when I was called a lesbian in seventh grade, like people weren't coming out. Okay. They just, right, yeah. like, even when I was in college, when I was in college, yeah. I say this to Nicole constantly. I'm like, where were all the girls that wanted to kiss girls when I wanted to kiss girls? Where were they? I wonder the same thing because about they my were college there. <laughs> Where were they? They weren't at my college either, but they probably were. And we just yeah, weren't they talking were, but to nobody wanted to talk, yeah, Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to do anything yeah. about it. And so it's like, you kind of look at that too. And it's like, we felt ousted or we felt, um, you know, like we didn't belong. But part of that, as I'm even just saying this to you right now, is like, because we were aware of something that authentically existed within us. And we felt that and we wanted to express that, but not everybody either was aware of the fact that they felt that or felt like they wanted to express it for whatever reason they did or didn't do mm -hmm. it. And so 
as I mean, and I was closeted. So like as many Mm -hmm. people go through those things, you're like, how many other people were sharing that experience? And then you look at people like this ties into the other part of what I want to say about your daughter who Mm -hmm. handled the entire situation of your relationship with your ex-husband and the way your family was going to change and bringing somebody new into your lives. Like she just did that so gracefully and as a 13 year old we were the worst when we're 13 (laughs) I know yeah they were well they're non-binary now um I'm sorry when I wrote the book no it's okay when I wrote the book um they were using she her pronouns uh, but have since um come out as non-binary so I'll use they them today and I talk about that in the epilogue of my book because the rest was published like finished locked before I wrote the epilogue but in the epilogue I talked about that piece um yeah so they at the time, I mean, it really gave me a lot of hope for their generation of just being like so much more open to different relationship structures. Like they knew um, when we opened our marriage, I told them when I started dating my girlfriend, Diana, who I'm still dating, um, there was some overlap there and it was in the experimentation of um, open relationship. And they were like, oh, that's so cool. Like you are so truthful with you, with each other. So you'll never cheat or have secrets. You know, we're like, yeah, this seems like the be- you know, best way for that. Well, I'm so proud of you, mom, that you get to express this part of yourself. And I was like, wow, I don't know that as a 13 year old, when and where I grew up, that would have yeah. hit me in that way. At no, all. no, I would have panicked. Honestly, I yeah. feel like I would have, <laughs> I would have been like, what do you mean? What's happening right now? Like my life just exploded. But to your point, like we couldn't totally. conceive of it, right? Like I think right. there's something to be said for the way that it shows up now. Um, And and there is a lot to do with representation. Mm -hmm. Something that I recognized, honestly, only really recently is how important that level of representation is because growing up, like there weren't shows with lesbians on them. Um, You know, when I was in college, it was like the L word. We were like desperate for anything. These aren't realistic relationship (laughs) dynamics, but we'll take it. And yeah, and still I'm like, oh, there's a lesbian in the show. We did, um, we did a TikTok that went viral. That was just absolutely ridiculous of us and a friend of ours walking down the street next to each other. So my wife and I walking together and then her walking by and just like, whispering to each other like I think she's a lesbian and then we show a shot of our friend texting on her phone being like they were totally lesbians and it's like we recognize each other in the wild yeah, but and like, you're just like you want to give like the secret it. handshake or just like <laughs> hi me too yeah and it's like I talk about this quite a bit in my book just the invisibility of that for me um not just in the relationship that I was in even now with my girlfriend when I'm not walking hand in hand with her down the street I, because I'm femme presenting, people assume I'm straight. And so there's that whole thing where it's like, should I be doing more to signal? What does that mean? Why yeah. would I do that? Is that how I want to express myself? Like, I'm still going through this whole identity crisis of like, is the way I express currently a product of um, having like pandered to a male gaze unconsciously for my whole life? Or is this my innate, like, way I want to express myself visually. So it's really like, I want to get super aligned there and it's been shifting over the last few years, but not to the point of like, I don't know. I I mean, I feel like if I am queer, I look queer because that's what queer looks like. Right. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Like, why would I need to be, you know, I don't know, signaling in other ways necessarily, but I feel the same way, you know, when we walk around and I'm like, oh, yay, there's another lesbians here. Yeah. Like it feels like, you want to have that your party reflected in 
the community the or in culture. Yeah, totally. And the invisibility of it having felt so painful for me uh, the first half of my life. Um, yeah, really right now it feels like I want to be more visible in that. Um, and I feel like I really hope, but I doubt that uh, my generation is the last one to have succumbed to compulsory heterosexuality. But um, well, would you like, consider yourself? Even, you're you'd be technically like Gen, Gen X, right? Because you're Gen X technically okay. seventy five. Okay, so, yeah. Okay, so we're we're ten years apart. But like, I think okay. that so I would refer to myself as an elder millennial. Um, yeah, and I feel very similarly. Like I mm -hmm. I was. I would always make the joke that there are like gay friended gay people and straight friended gay people. And I just had like all the straight friends. Like I mm -hmm. was like the friend, I it wasn't trying to like seek community for the sake of just having that. Or mm -hmm. I should rephrase that. I did. And I didn't find my people there. And so right. when you talk about what queer looks like, I think it can be really hard when you are, even if you're not closeted, you can be out and you're just not in a place where, um, you know, your people are also queer. Um, and right. so I struggled a lot with like, okay, well, I'm hanging out with these people because they're gay. And that's literally, that's it. That's the, and I'm using mm -hmm. gay as like a broad stroke queer term. Bro but yeah. like, um, and it's like, just because we have this thing in common doesn't mean these are my people. And so it hasn't really been until my adult life um, that I've, been able to feel a lot closer to queer people because we align in a lot of other different ways. But when I was in college, right. it would be like a friend says to you, oh, I know somebody you should date. They're a lesbian, right? Like that's it. That's all <laughs> like, you that's have. That's the common thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. As if like someone would say that to a straight person. Like yeah. you would be I like, hey, <laughs> I know a man. <laughs> you should date this person. Yeah. He is and, attracted to women. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think that part of that visibility to your point is like, even just seeing each other in the context of those, uh, those circles is sometimes challenging because we, especially... I found that coming out, I came out pretty much entirely in college, um, but it was sort of a, a slow drip. Um, mm -hmm. And as I got to this point where I would have a girlfriend, um, it was easier to talk about it because you could kind of frame the conversation around your relationship. You didn't have to come out as overtly. Right. Uh, yeah. And then when I got married the first time, it was like, you say wife and there's no discrepancy there you could say girlfriend mm -hmm. and you get girlfriend or like girlfriend and it's totally. like, okay great now I have <laughs> yeah. to explain that so you know yeah. you're constantly trying to find the language and the representation to your point physically that feels right to you um mm -hmm. and my wife will refer to me as mask presenting and I'm like I don't really feel like that's like I get what you're saying because I've got short mm -hmm. hair and I dress like a tomboy which you mentioned mm -hmm. the book is kind of about day. I'm like I still <laughs> refer to myself as that but I think like it's like the aesthetic yeah. is like my my girlfriend aesthetic. does too she's like yeah. I'm a tomboy yeah, yeah. like ah. yeah, what does it even mean <laughs> yeah, oh, so, yeah um but but I think to your point you know she's also very feminine presenting and so mm -hmm. it I I think I'd be interested to hear when she listens to this, her thoughts on it, because I think she might be going through that a little bit. Like she's very beautiful and can pull off like dressing up, going out, looking like 
attend to go to a fancy event and I would be so proud to have her on my arm and she can be in like yoga pants and a workout top. And I'm like, great. Awesome. I actually prefer that probably, you know? And so it's like, do what feels right to you. And for me, that is the short hair that took me decades Mm -hmm. to actually commit to because when I was little and I was made fun of for looking like a boy, I was like, no, we'll grow the hair out. Right. Right. Grow the hair yeah. out. I'll look more feminine. I'll date boys. I'll do this. I'll do that. And so when and now I first it's a reclamation, I love yes. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I love that. And it's like, so when that happened, it was actually when my mom had passed away and I was like, fuck it, like get rid of the hair. I dyed it bright mm-hmm. red. It was like aggressive. And, mm-hmm. um, it was like the epitome of when somebody has a like a life crisis and then they get bangs, but it was like all right. the things that happened. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was going through a really bad divorce. My mm-hmm. mom died. I was like, take it high and tight and make it as red as possible. We're going to make <laughs> right. it known. Nobody's going to ask me what went wrong. They're just going to look and they're going to know. Yeah. Um, like, oh, honey, are you okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah 100%. But like, mm-hmm. I think to your point, you know, do you feel like there's been in your coming out journey, uh, also the process of identifying like the parts of yourself that have felt right to you throughout your life that you're shedding that maybe are also like coming back in parts, like as you're identifying more clearly, like what you, as you said, sort of like what you want to hold on to and what you want to release. Yeah. I think that um, it's a process of remembering in some way who I was to begin with. Like even the little kid of me was pretty wise about who she was. And then I think growing up in the family that I grew up in who were wonderful people, but I always felt very different from them in a lot of ways, um, spiritually, uh, politically, like there there are a lot of differences. And I recognize that um, pretty early on. And I think that I was socialized out of being some of the parts of myself, you know, um, because of that need to belong and be loved. And it's a survival need really for a kid to be like, these are the people that take care of me and I need that to happen, you know? So I will be this perfect daughter and I will get straight A's and I will date this guy and I will do all the things. Um, Yeah, but now it does feel more like, okay, the parts of me that I felt like were weird or that had to go underground, are actually my magic. Like those are the parts that are me. And those are the parts that I've been slowly reclaiming in my, all of my adult life. I'd say after college, um, college was like a awful time for me actually in my life. And I talk about that a bit in my book, but I felt pretty lost there. But I think after undergraduate, especially when I started my graduate program in my late twenties at Naropa University, which is a Buddhist oriented school for transpersonal counseling and for art therapy. And I met my people, like I met other people there who reflected these parts of me back to myself, the type of spirituality um, that feels important to me and, you know, just different ways of looking at things sociopolitically. And um, I started to realize like, these aren't wrong or bad. (laughs) These are actually ways I want to express in the world and have been feeling uh, more into that, you know, as I've gotten older and older. So I feel like I'm becoming weirder <laughs> and I know I love that though endearingly because I I love I love weird people and I just think um I think those are the parts of us that make us like you said before like that magnetize others to us when we can be our fullest self and we're very comfortable that way even in how we're presenting like like you said with your wife you know wearing yoga pants and you know a workout top or whatever and it's like yeah I prefer that but 
there's something in me similarly with other people when I can tell that they're at ease with themselves and they're just being themselves and they're not trying to necessarily fit into some mold or to mask parts of them that they might have felt shame for and that that's the valid thing to do um and I'm not saying that I don't <laughs> I'm not above that because it's like an ongoing process of becoming and unmasking and unfolding but um I find that super attractive like when I feel that in another person that they are just being who they are unapologetically um yeah and like same like with my girlfriend she's um she's more like I mean she's not super femme or super mad she's just like more sporty ish and but yeah, I can yeah, tell yeah, when yeah. she's just like being her with like the backwards hat and the, and I'm just like oh you're radiating yourself today and that is just magnetic and attractive and I can tell when that's happening it's like there you are you know that feels really really good um to see that in other people so well, yeah trying to find that point of myself too yeah well something that you said in the book too well not even that you said but the part of the book where you and your girlfriend were just kind of meeting each other and mm -hmm. recognizing that your souls were connecting in some way. Mm -hmm. I had such a visual in my head of that moment for you too. Um, because the words that you both said to each other were like, I want to know you. And yeah. it hit so much because when Nicole and I met, uh, she had listened to the podcast. We had we had met online. I from the get, we were like, we'll be friends, whatever kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There was no intended interest. And she said, after listening to the podcast, she's like, I just knew I had to know you. And so when when you mm -hmm. had written that and I got to that point in the book, I just felt such a deep connection to that. And when you just made the statement, when you look at your girlfriend and you have this moment of like you're radiating yourself like you are being who mm -hmm. you are and that is what I love about you and that is who I want to see because when you have those moments where you question yourself in life you question like you said you're weird um mm -hmm. I've had such a similar experience in embracing that and this was another quote that I pulled again paraphrasing but um you'd said that a big part of the gift that you have to author offer sorry has to do with your high bandwidth for authentic connection and that when you give that gift from your attachment wound with fear of abandonment you experience it as grasping and then you shame yourself for grasping most relatable mm -hmm. thing I've ever because I would tell Nicole I'm like I was so desperate like yeah. I just so desperately wanted people to love me the way that I loved them and then what you finish that quote with is when I offer this gift in a clean and radiant way I find that I'm met with deep and satisfying connections and it is so spot on Jen it's like we are so worried that somebody's going to see us and not like us that we hold back and then what we realize is when we we give space to those parts of ourselves that are so true to ourselves that people are really seeing you fully for the first time. And that is such a revelatory thing to experience and such a, for me, such a moment of gratitude in, in recognition of myself to be able to be like, I don't have to carry the shame that my younger self convinced me I needed to carry. I get to be who I am and I get to be appreciated for who I am by others. And by way of that, recognize that I can and should appreciate myself. Yes. Oh, well said. Very much so. Like that, that's something that I work with. I, I've been working with it constantly and I still feel like um, 
with my attachment style, like insecure, anxious attachment. And like, I think that some of that fear of abandonment that lives in me from my own history, I do tend to, you know, offer myself, like I'm the gatherer of my friends. I'm like someone who likes to organize things like that and to have one-on-one connections with people that are deep and real and not, I don't have a, a huge tolerance for like a lot of small talk. I feel like I got my fill of that as a kid. So I'm like, no, let's just go there. Like I want, and there is a part of me that is, um, I recognize that it was maybe built out of that wound and may still come from that wound in some way. But as long as I'm conscious of the wound and I'm conscious of that happening, it, there's a consciousness thing that I think is the healing key there. It's like, this can happen and I can understand why it might be happening that way. But to to know that helps it to happen less and less out of the wound and just really be giving from this place or expressing, I'm not even giving, but expressing from this place of like, all of that's true, yes. and. And let me also show you the wound part because that's part of who I am too. And that also needs to be loved up. Like that isn't, yeah, yeah, it's like, and then it's really vulnerable to be seen in our fullest expression that way. Um, Because it's like the parts that we might've covered up if we were being less um, authentic. But I think that the places where we feel the most alone are really where we connect the most deeply when we are brave enough to do that in a safe space. Like it's not like everyone necessarily gets that part of us. Um, it might not feel safe, right? But when we gauge it and it's a relationship where you feel safe and you can dare to make those parts seen, I have been pleasantly surprised in those those conversations and those connections that that is where um, you know I've been most afraid maybe or have had the most shame. And when I say that other people, it allows them to say, the parts that maybe that they've kept in the dark because shame can't really exist in the light. And it's like, oh, that's where we find the most connection or the deepest connection. Um, but it takes this courage to like get there, I think, with someone. So yeah. that's what I'm practicing. I don't know if it's, I mean, it's just, it's constantly practicing. <laughs> that's how I'll say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate also just how intentional you are about making it known that you are, as we all are, a work in progress, right? Um, We can only live life with the information that we have now. And I do think that when you are growing up and you've built all these expectations and now you're at this point in life where you're feeling challenged to live life honestly and with integrity for yourself above all else, um, it creates a bit of chaos and something that you share in your book you lean into um, astrology at various points in the Mm -hmm. book which I really appreciate because I will say historically was something that I didn't really pay much attention to like for like I don't really it just it never it never came up didn't really interest me didn't really have to pay attention to it right and what I really love is um, as I've gotten into the astrology more over the last few years and just not even astrology spirituality overall Um, Mm -hmm. I see so much connectivity in the way that, you know, we show up in the world and the things that are happening around us. And so can you share a little bit about how that factored into your experience, um, whether while writing the book or just kind of overall? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, astrology is one of those things that I think made me weird as a kid. (laughs) I would like study it from the time I was 11. Um, my family was like, what is this woo-woo, you know, <laughs> like what are you talking about? Um, so I'm not an astrologer. I don't ever 
proclaim to be, but it is a big part of my book because um, for, uh, gosh, I guess ever since 2005, I've been seeing the same astrologer that I talk about in my book. His name's Eric Myers, and he's amazing. Um, and when I was approaching my 42nd birthday, I was at this place of um, feeling that urgency we talked about earlier of like, I need to, I need more, I need more truth and grit and depth. And I need to express more of myself. I feel like there's a part of me that I am not able to express in the current like shape of my life. And I need that to come out. It felt like the magma brewing. I use a lot of volcano metaphor in my book, but it was like, underneath and I needed to come out and be um, lava maybe, but I was feeling all of that and it felt like such turmoil. And um, he just listened to me smiling. And then he was like, oh, you're right on time. Like, this is so perfect. If I were writing a book about the Uranus opposition, you would be my case study. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, that's what astrologers call the midlife crisis. Basically, it's um, uh, it's around your 42nd birthday. And I was doing like my 42nd birthday reading. I see him every year around my birthday for like, what's coming this year sort yeah, of yeah. Uh, reading. And it's the time when the planet Uranus is like halfway across the Zodiac from the time it was at your birth. Um, and the planet Uranus is about like rebellion and freedom and about calling you on your bullshit and having anything come to light that hasn't been expressed yet. So anything you're repressing there's this urge around the Uranus opposition um, and astrology to expose it, um, to have it emerge, right? So he was like, this is an emergence. This is what, you know, I don't think he used that word, but it was what the Uranus opposition is about. Um, and it's in service of like a higher awareness or a higher connection to like the higher self and to find like true inner freedom, to try to find like sovereignty um, you know, and self-agency around what it is you want to do in the second half of life. So he's like, here's your opportunity um, to do that. And I was like, you know, sobbing <laughs> in the session. And you got the like, green light. Congratulations. Yeah. And it did. That felt so validating. He's like, you're exactly where you need to be. Like, this is what's happening. Um, so that felt really just interesting to learn that just to be like, oh, like, what is I'm feeling in here and down here on earth is like reflected somehow there in my chart. Um, that just felt really interesting. And some people connect with that in my book, some people don't, but it's part of my story and how I felt validated and you're right, like greenlit to move forward with the things that I was um, really wanting to express and explore. And a way that I bring that into the book is talking about the lunar nodes. And I don't have to get all into that here, but it's the North and South node and everyone's chart, what you're moving toward and what you're, what your comfort zone is and then what, you know, um, would be like the highest aim of your chart. Um, and so mine, my North node, what I'm moving into are a lot of like is Scorpio. So it's a lot of Scorpionic things that are, you know, um, around sexual expression and around writing and around sharing things that are more subversive or edgy or woo woo or witchy or all of these things that felt like my weird stuff. I was like, Oh, so it's about making those visible and teaching those. And, um, being kind of a stand for those. And that has felt um, scary to me in the past in a lot of ways where I don't know if it's just persecution, fear that's like ancient, <laughs> that's in my blood and bones of like, oh, if I stand up in my queerness and my witchiness, I will be somehow, you know, burned at the stake or, yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, now it's like, I've gotten to a point of where, where it's, not even a choice in me to whether or not to express that. It's just like 
this is what needs to happen next um, in order for my own evolution and to just be how I want to be in the world and to be modeling that for my kid and um, but just modeling the living by truth. Um, and I think that that, well, that's kind of a whole other conversation, not astrology, but. Well, I um, mean, feel free to go that direction too. I mean, one of the things that I, I think is really powerful in the book is speaking to your relationship dynamic with your family and with your parents. Uh, there were parts where you are kind of outlining, um, outlining on is the wrong way to say it. Um, you're detailing conversations or experiences you had with your mom mm -hmm. and sort of, as you were saying, you know, things that you grew up thinking or, or expectations that you were raised with and trying to challenge those now and really step into who you are. I, I understand that. Like my mom, before she passed away, um, she and I were really similar, but we were also like head, but because of that. And then yeah. the things that we differed on, um, I had very similar conversations with my mother about like my own coming out and, um, the way that you speak about how she's such a kind, compassionate person mm -hmm. and you're seeking that from your primary caregiver mm -hmm. and, it's like, you know, that they're capable of giving it, but what can be really hard in those moments in my experience and what I think you were saying in the book, based on my interpretation of it, is that like, it, it kind of pulls you a, a little bit away from that authentic self in those conversations, because you're, you want to hold space for yourself and honor yourself, but you also have to navigate somebody else's discomfort or, yeah. And I say have to, you don't have to, we tend right. to, we're conditioned to. And I think with mm -hmm. that gen, with my mom's a baby boomer. Um, and so it's like with that generation, it's like, there was so much of like, this is how it's done. This is what you do. Mm -hmm. And whether yeah. that was sexuality yeah. or otherwise. Right. Um, and so when you challenge their perspective on things with your own existence, that can be a really daunting experience um can you share a little bit about like what that was like for you and how that kind of permeates throughout your relationship even now sure yeah this is the part that kept me up at night the most I think writing my book I mean yeah I talked about my marriage and sexuality all of these things pretty explicitly but um the piece with my mom was uh, yeah it's, it's a lot I wanted to keep it true to my experience um this is one of the hardest parts about writing a memoir is that, you know, I'm telling it from my perspective and her perspective is clearly different because she's a totally different human than I am. And, um, you know, when you write a memoir, it's like the people in your closest spheres are the people you're writing about, but really writing through my own lens. And I wanted to be respectful, um, you know, and, and I wanted to be objective in a sense, but there's no way of being fully objective when you're telling it through your own voice. And I feel like, um, the situation with me, for those who haven't read my book, it's, I came out to my mom, gosh, in my early 20s, um, but I was already dating Craig, the man I married eventually, and was like, yeah, I'm attracted to women as well. And it was like said in passing, and I almost just sort of said it, and then it was like, oh, shit, I just said that. And then I got my head and waited. And then she was like, oh, well, at least you have Craig. So that's not going to be a problem was like the response. So I felt like crush immediately, like, oh, okay. So that doesn't mean anything or, um, 
you know, just wasn't seen, wasn't acknowledged. And I think there are about five of those instances between my early twenties and 40, early forties, um, where I would like put that out there. And then it was like, um, just seen as like, well, that doesn't matter. And then it wasn't really received. Yeah, it definitely wasn't received. And I think, you know, she heard what she wanted to hear. And when we talk about it now, she has a different perspective of like, oh, I thought you were saying that you were okay with people, you know, being attracted to whoever they wanted to. And I was like, no, I was really saying I am attracted. Like those are the words I said, but, um, but I wasn't living that life. So in a sense, it was like, your sexuality doesn't matter because your life looks like this. And I, it, I realized the privilege in my life looking like, you know, hetero passing as it did. Um, and the invisibility of it too. Like I said, that was just really hurtful to me, um, especially when I'm blatantly expressing it. So I think, yeah, my mom's also a baby boomer and, and has a lot of, you know, this is the way things are. And so when um, Craig and I made the choice to separate, I wrote my mom a letter and I asked her to just take time with it. And I said, I didn't want it to be a conversation, you know, in real time necessarily. Um, because I wanted her to digest it. I realized it would hit her in a way that, you know, it was a lot that she wasn't expecting at once. And I was really trying to have compassion for the fact that she would need some time to process it and not, and I was trying to protect my own energy in that way of, you know, I didn't necessarily want to receive back whatever the first reactionary response. I totally understand that. <laughs> I, I left a note in my parents' door um, well, yeah. when I couldn't have a conversation with them because it was too many knockdown drag out conversations where it was mm. like, I don't feel like having to explain myself and be interrupted by it. So like, you need to hear what I have to say, consume what I have to say, and then mm -hmm. come back and have a conversation with me. So I completely, that was like, when I tell you that there's so much that's relatable in your story, I was like, oh man, that hits home. Cause like <laughs> yeah. the way you described it was exactly how I felt. Wow. Yeah. I think just, I think it's kind of kind to both parties, right? Like to yourself to know that that person can go have their experience and process what they need to. And then we can have a conversation and, you know, to them to be able to sit with it for a while and talk like to said, who they protect, need to talk to. Protect your protect energy. My, like, yeah. That's so like important. I, it is. I, I didn't feel like I was available at that point to explain or defend. I had been going through so much over those years with Craig and um, really trying to figure ourselves out within our marriage that it wasn't like, and now I'm open to opinions. It was like, this is what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, I felt like I needed to protect that. And the way things are now are, it, it's interesting how, yeah, like books are just a snapshot in time. <laughs> so it's like preserved where it was. And I wrote most of this book in 2020, 2021. Um, but we're continuing to have those conversations. And I won't say that it's like perfect um, at all at all but it is progressing and I think that she is hearing me more and hearing where I am hurt by and have been hurt by the lack of recognition um so I think that it's an ongoing process but my book I was hoping for it to be be a bridge and an invitation to her to deepen our relationship and have her get to know me like really me and not necessarily the me that um I was like raised to be like, you know, all of the expectation things that I met. Great. But like, that's not who I fully am. And I want to have a relationship with her where I'm getting to be my full self and that she is too. And so that's the part too, like you were saying, like leaving room for them, um, you know, to have, to be who they are, like to, you know, like 
we don't have to necessarily make them comfortable, make other people comfortable, but in out of love and, and respect and appreciation for, you know, the person my mom is who has the hugest heart of anyone I know. Um, I, I want to leave her space to be and say, uh, you know, be who she is and say what she needs to say as well. So yeah, it's ongoing and it's hard not to take some of it personally. Um, yeah, especially when it's political, because to me, the political is personal, to her it's not. <laughs> like, there's a whole lot there. We could unpack that forever. But um, I feel like it's on a good trajectory. And um, I think that initially it was harder. She read the book before it was published, um, when it had gone through its last round of editing. So I knew I couldn't change it anymore. But I also, it was before other people could read it. So I did that intentionally so that I wouldn't be tempted to change things um, based on how they were uh, received. So. I respect um, that I and think, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was tough. I lost a lot of sleep in that period of time of like giving my mom the book and waiting for her to read it. And she's like, oh, I haven't had a lot of time yet. And I'm like, can you just finish it so I can sleep? And she's like, wait, why are you losing sleep? <laughs> I'm like, why don't you read it? And we'll talk. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah um, and it, it's it's good. I'm, I'm about to go visit them and uh, hopefully have some in-person conversations um, about about some of it as well. So I recommend it. Like if the opportunities there to take it, I feel like just knowing what I do know about you through your story and, and the other interactions that we've had that you probably would take that opportunity. But something I'll say that like right before the last time I saw my mom in person, um, I had was at my sister's also during COVID. So like our timelines in terms of like big life changes, blowing shit up in our lives, very similar also. Wow. Um and so I was at my sister's and talking to my parents about like this really bad situation with my ex. And my mom had said to me, you know, like, I don't understand like why you couldn't, you felt you couldn't talk to us about this. Right. Yeah. And I had to explain as much as I could from a place of compassion. And thankfully I'd been doing a lot of therapy. So I was in a good place mm -hmm. to have this discussion. And I cannot emphasize enough the importance of having it before she passed away because I was able to say, well, because when I came out to you guys, it was very much about how you responded to it. It wasn't about mm -hmm. what I was experiencing or what it took for me to go to that place. And so right. the point in the book where you reference your mom taking out a yellow legal pad, I kid you not that when I came out <laughs> to my parents, <laughs> that was our sex talk. <laughs> my, my, my mom had a yellow legal pad the next day and was like these are the things that we're concerned about and I was like what is happening right now um so I was like okay so maybe is that I was like do all the boomer moms just carry around yellow legal just like, okay Let's we have things this. to discuss hold please um but you know and I think that having that moment of like okay I'm an adult and I need to say what I need to say but you're mm -hmm. battling that inner child and you're being like, I don't want to say this thing that's going to upset my parent or create tension or whatever. And it's like, but if you don't do that, if we focus too much on their comfort or discomfort, then we exist in a perpetual state of discomfort. And that's no right. way to live. And I'm like, why do I always have to be the one that's uncomfortable? So like, right. I, I think that it's great that you'll be seeing them in person because I do think having the in-person interaction I think being able to share space and energy with people for those conversations is extremely important. Um, you can have yeah. it over the phone or FaceTime and that's better than nothing. But I do right. think there's something to be said for being able to hug somebody 
after totally. or during or whatever it is and and give yeah. that space in like the actual context of where you're sitting and, and discussing it. I agree. Like it brings that level of humanness and the reminder of like, above all, we love each other and we're family and, um, you know, we can talk about these things and get to know each other as people. Like I yes. want my mom to know me as an adult. And like you said, like, I don't necessarily need to make myself smaller or hide parts of myself to make her comfortable. Um, but that's been the pattern, I think, you know, of just like, and I think it's a typical pattern of children trying to not rock the boat or make their parents uncomfortable since the parents are the ones who are providing or caregiving or that we depend on, like I said, you know, um, as children. So I think that it's just like a coming into adult relationship and we've done it over and over, I think, in my adult life, but this is another level. And it's um, it's a harder one, I think, in a lot of ways, because it does challenge a lot of parts um, of her, a lot of beliefs in her, and as well as like, you know, uh, mom not wanting things to be hard for her kid. Um, was, yeah, and, for sure. Yeah, and I, I think that in her head, that's what that is. And I think in her generation, that would have been a lot harder. Um, not to say it's not hard now clearly but it's it's, just, um, it's different it's the the societal dynamic is extremely extremely different like they're it is. the the dialogue is unfortunately really similar in a lot of ways um mm -hmm. as as we were talking about like the socio-political side of it but if you look at the comfort level that people have in expressing themselves the ability that we have to connect with other people in person or virtually like i do think yeah that as detrimental as like being online all the time can be in a lot of ways, it's also bred a sense of community for people who haven't felt seen historically. And so mm -hmm. I think that part of what our parents miss in their generation is they're not getting all of that by design. Right. They're, they're actively probably like, I don't need to deal with that. And that's okay. Totally. But, but don't act like it doesn't exist or it's not relevant or important. Right. Yeah. And I don't think like my parents have a direct experience of that. But when I look at um, like social media and having a 16 year old and I think, well, oh, should I limit that or not? I mean, that provided them, especially during the pandemic and being a teenager, the pandemic, who wasn't able to get together with friends, who wasn't able to have sleepovers. It's like, and who's queer and who's non-binary, like a way of seeing themselves expressed or seeing themselves mirrored back to them that yeah. in a way that I didn't have access to as a teenager, that would have been amazing. Um, so I feel like it's amazing it's now important... to me. Like yeah. I feel grateful yeah. for that me now. Me too. Me too. I mean, as much as, you know, I, you was saying like some people, of course, like put on their best face, you know, for social media um, and, or like, ah, and this is how it was and ta-da, it worked out like that sort of thing. I feel like um, that's changing too, in, in a lot of senses. And I am grateful for that. Like, and I think that um, the more real people can be and the more like exposing of the parts that feel safe for them to expose are helpful and other people connecting um, in that way. And the visibility of, you know, having other queer people or other just whatever version of what part of you needs to emerge or what needs to come out, having that visible as much as feels safe can be so healing for other people who are viewing it. And um, yeah, it just really feels like part of why I wanted to even put this book into the world is like, find those parts of themselves in it somewhere and um be able to feel validated or seen or less less shame around um whatever part it is up touching 
touching them. So, yeah. So I know that we're, um, kind of coming up on time here, so I'd love to just kind of ask one more question. Um, so you've obviously you've put your book out here. It's relatively recent release. Um, it's done Mm -hmm. very well. Um, kudos on just like hitting number one on Amazon in a variety of categories. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, thank you. And just real quick before I go into the last question, I do want to say based on what you just said, like hopefully helping release some of that shame, I can say from a personal perspective, like a hundred percent, it helped you that. And it's helping me process those things and think about it differently and, and really understand and dig into those parts of myself that I, you know, like you've said sort of throughout the conversation in the book, you recognize that you need to do something about it, but it's not always like I'm in the place where I'm ready to do that. And right now I am. And so it has even just in the fleeting moments since consuming your book and getting into this conversation, um, you know, it's really given me a sense of grounding in myself and recognition that the things that I am afraid of or feeling shame around are things that I can work through and conquer and, and heal. Mm -hmm. Um, so thank you for sharing your story so vulnerably and, and truly the way that you write is really beautiful. I, you, um, you said earlier about sort of the metaphors with the volcanoes, but it just throughout, you really speckle the book with, um, your personality and your language choices just really, um, spot on and, and spoke to me in a really deeply personal way. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks so much for saying that. I really, yeah, I love hearing from people who are reading it and just hearing what they are getting from it. And, um, it helps me to have that sort of a mirror to, to know what it is I'm transmitting, you know? Um, so I, I appreciate those words and I appreciate you um, interviewing me here. (laughs) Thank you. And so, um, so you've got this book out there. I cannot rave about it enough if you can't tell throughout the entire episode, but, um, Mm. where, what is next on your list and, and where are you going from here now that, um, you've published the book? Are you looking to continue kind of your authoring career or building out your practice? What's, what's on your, uh, agenda? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, right now I am, uh, working as a midlife coach. I see people one-on-one and I also facilitate groups. Um, so I have, you know, some programs that are ongoing. I also have some that are, um, evergreen or, you know, self-paced programs online mm-hmm. that are kind of different themes from the book. Um, there's one that's called queer emergence, one that's witch emergence, one that's soul emergence. So there's some fun things that people can get into. Um, all of that's on my website, which is just my name, jenberlingo.com. Um, so I'm always doing like, I'm seeing like what's next, because like I said, the book is, you know, a snapshot in time, but I'm still growing with it. I'm still unfolding and unfurling and evolving um, in that way and seeing what, where, where it wants to take my work next and where I'm called. Um, But this is still feeling really alive and juicy. So that is what, um, what I'm offering right now. And just, I definitely want to keep writing. Um, Writing is something that I've done since I was little and I have wanted to publish a book since I was like three. So I'm still kind of in shock that that happened. (laughs) Um, And I'd love to do it again. So um, I have a few ideas brewing and I have not felt the pause enough yet to sit quietly and write. Um, But I'm hoping that comes again. And I'm feeling the pull back into um, making more visual art as well. Because I think while the book was being edited and produced and published, a lot of my artistic expression really was aiming toward, you know, writing um, more uh-huh. so than painting. And 
I'm my art studio is beckoning me upstairs here. <laughs> like I, I really want to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's Thanks. awesome. Well, and I, I really appreciate that you have so many modalities that you can use to help express yourself because as you um, said in the fact that this is a teaching memoir, you're giving people opportunities to sort of um, question and uh, invite ourselves into these areas of our lives or different practices that we might not consider otherwise. And right. I know coming away from it, that's something that I hope other people really take in and practice as they're going through your book. Even with the audiobook, I think it's great because you can just pause it, like write down the prompt and yeah. go through those exercises. And I think it really you're offering people not only you're not only inviting them in, but you're giving them, you know, the space and you can self-pace that part of it too, which I think is really beautiful. Totally. Yeah. I, I really hope people will engage with it, you know, wherever they feel comfortable and maybe even a hair beyond their comfort zone. Um, just yeah, because I hope that it's growth producing in some way. Absolutely. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining. And you mentioned people can find out more about you at jenberlingo.com, but is there anywhere else you want them to follow along? Sure. I am on social media. Um, I hang out on Instagram probably more than other um, social media outlets. So I'm at Jen Berlingo there. Um, but I'm also on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all, all of those places. But, you got them all in the show um, notes. Yeah, they're all there in the show notes. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it. My book is available in paperback, ebook and audiobook on Amazon. And it's available um, basically anywhere online, wherever books are sold, or you can ask your indie bookstores to order it, which is an awesome way yes. of um, supporting them as well. Yeah, so. that's actually a really great idea. I appreciate you saying that. My mom was a big supporter of small bookshops. Um, and in my hometown, awesome. there's a really great one. So next time I visit, I'll see if we can get it in there. Oh, good. Thank you. If they don't already have it, what would be amazing is if they already have that it. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be I'll very let cool. you know. <laughs> Please do. Jen. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh my gosh, Jen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nikki. And I also want to say like, thank you for sharing the parts of your story and pieces around your mom and your coming out. Like that is so helpful for me and touching for me. So I'm glad it was like a two-way conversation. And that felt really, really wonderful to not just be like, hot seat, <laughs> like tell me all your stuff. Like it was <laughs> a really good interview in that way. So thanks, Nikki. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that the group of people that came together have come together and put us in each other's paths. Um, gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. 
Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.